listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Diker. Thanks for joining me for episode 37, Stump the Chump. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. My brutal quizzing of appellate specialist Jared Krukar of the Kynes, Markman, and Fellman Law Firm in Tampa is coming up next. Welcome to America's favorite Florida-based appellate podcast quiz show, Stump the Chump Appellate Style. Our contestant today is the original tipsy coachman, Jared Krukar. Jared, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me again. So, Jared, you know how this show works. I'm going to ask you a series of sort of random Florida appellate questions, uh, state and federal. These are the kinds of questions that appellate lawyers face from time to time and requires a little bit of expertise. Uh, if you're wrong, you'll you'll hear a sound. You'll hear a buzzer, right? Quiz show. Uh, if I agree with you or if I want to chime in, I'll do that, too, since, you know, I'm the host and it's my show. Sounds uh, like a plan. The audience can play along by answering these questions in their head or bothering their spouse or significant other by just shouting out uh, answers aloud like a lunatic. It's like every night at 730 with Jeopardy in my house. Right. And if anybody in the audience thinks that you're wrong, uh, they can email or tweet the show or perhaps you can come back on and defend your answer or admit your shameful mistake on a future episode. We so, don't have to get them my email address. Too. <laughs> It'll be in the show notes. So, uh, those are the rules. Uh, are you still, in, will, still willing to subject yourself to a potential public scorn? What are the prizes again? <laughs> just, just you know, fame and fame and fortune, I guess. Well, I mean, and that's the best prize. I, I'm ready. Let's go. Great. Let's play stump the chump, <laughs> Florida pellet style. So, Jared, the first question is, uh, how long do you have to file a motion? You're a prevailing party in state court. How long do you have to to file a motion for appellate costs? Well, Dwayne, you have 45 days from the date of the opinion to file your motion for appellate costs. And, of course, you have to file that in the trial court. Right. And I think uh, correct. And I think that this um, this is something that people who don't do this work all the time sometimes get confused. Right. Uh, What some people will do is file a motion for fees and costs in a single motion. They'll throw in that request for costs and they're not thinking about it because that's just what you do in trial court. Um, And the the court will issue an order striking your motion for costs or your other side will file a response that says the motion should be stricken. And it's just a little bit of egg on your face. It doesn't do anything really negative to you at that point. But No, no, it's just, it's kind of embarrassing to get that order and have to uh, explain that to somebody that you didn't realize when the motion for costs were due. So. Right, right. And the other thing is that, you know, um, it's not usual you have something calculated from the date of the opinion like that. Most people, or a lot of people will often go from the date of the mandate since you're supposed to file in the trial court. They think, well, I have to wait till the appellate court gives us its jurisdiction but it is the date of the opinion. I think the rule actually says the date of the decision. Um, and I've always read that to be opinion. And I think that's kind of the prevailing, uh, prevailing thought on that. So. Excellent. Good job. All right. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> so Jared, what about partial final judgments? Uh, these are subject to some different rules. When do you have to appeal a final partial judgment? Uh, there's only one time you have to find, uh, immediately appeal a partial final judgment. That's when the judgment disposes of the entire case as to any party. And that doesn't have to be you. Uh, you could still be in the trial court or, or in the case and going on. But if, say, you are the plaintiff and one of five defendants um, gets out on a summary judgment or something, uh, that's the time to appeal that that issue. Um, otherwise, you may appeal immediately or you can wait until the end of the entire case. Your call. So part two of this question is uh, related. What mm-hmm. exactly is this Mendez trap that we hear people talking about, and, and, and when do I have to worry about it? This is actually something I mentioned in the very first episode of 
of issues on appeal podcast is if you know what the mendez trap is this show is probably for you but uh, we've never really <laughs> talked about it so uh, what is the mendez trap well it's good that you didn't we didn't talk about it and that we don't really have to worry about it as much anymore um mendez is a decision from the, the 70s a florida supreme court decision and before the rules look like what they do now uh, mendez required a party to immediately appeal a partial judgment if it was unrelated to other portions of the case. So if you had something that you couldn't say was intertwined with other claims um, and that claim was uh, disposed of by dismissal or something like that, uh, you would need to appeal that immediately or forever lose your rights to appeal it. You couldn't bring it up later in the final judgment. Um, So that is not the case anymore. You look at the the newer rules. They, They took care of that, I think, mostly in the 80s and then refined it since then to kind of eliminate that trap for the unwary one last trap is better uh for everybody just the fact that it's called a trap uh, is enough to make you nervous so okay that's exactly why you probably asked that question excellent well we have uh cleared another level and you're moving on all right we're uh, two down another issue that comes up a lot is attorney's fees a lot of times in the trial court, we'll get a judgment, uh, and then at some point after that, we'll get an attorney fee judgment because the court reserved jurisdiction and, and is issuing an attorney for fee order. Do I have to file a separate notice of appeal uh, for the attorney fee judgment once it's, it's quantified um, when the underlying uh, final order is already pending on appeal? The technical answer is no as long as the fee judgment is contingent upon the underlying judgment that you're appealing at the time. I would always still file the notice of appeal, but let me explain. um, Let me explain why is that if you prevail in your appeal of, of the underlying judgment and get it overturned, then the fee judgment can no longer stand. Uh, You can use 1.540. I think it's B five. And that rule allows you to file a motion for relief from judgment. And you can say the, the judgment upon which this fee award is based is, has been vacated by the appellate court. So this fee judgment can no longer stand. And there's a, there's a bunch of case law on that. That said, I never really feel comfortable uh, relying on even that excessive case law I've seen. Um, I always end up filing the notice of appeal anyways, but what I like this rule for the most is that when I'm appellate counsel on a case and maybe nobody told me that a fee judgment was entered at a certain time or a fee judgment was entered long before I got involved and nobody filed a notice of appeal, not all is lost. There, there's still, you can still probably um, undo that fee judgment if you win the appeal. Yeah, no, that, that is a great point that, that uh, we don't always talk about. That is sort of a safety net, I guess, for, for mm-hmm. us as appellate counsel if we come in a little bit late. You know, I guess one of the other practical problems with losing at the appellate court and getting an attorney fee award against you is if you, if you don't appeal it, uh, and if you don't appeal it with the intention of filing a supersedious bond, then you're going to be subject to execution uh, in the meantime, right? So that that's, that's the true. only avenue that, that gives you a... Uh, a surefire way of staying enforcement pending the appeal. That is true. Although hopefully you can find a way to work with the, um, the other side to maybe stay enforcement of that fee judgment while it's pending. Since the, the chances of it being overturned are usually, you know, it's usually pretty high. If the, if the appeal has anything going on in it, that, that is actually making it viable. Sure. Well, unfortunately, that depends on us having opposing <laughs> counsel who are reasonable and and you know aren't, don't want to charge full speed ahead. And and of course, we should note we should note that uh, if you do need a supersedious bond, you should contact Court Surety Bond Agency, the sponsor of this podcast, right? Absolutely, and also <laughs> sponsor of the Florida Bar Appellate Practice Section. That's right. Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. They can be reached at www.courtsurety.com or toll free at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes. I suggest you take an opportunity right now, add CSBA's contact information to your own contact list so that you're ready 
the next time your client needs a court bond. Thrilled to have a great company like CSBA as a longtime sponsor of the podcast. CSBA is a national agency, but they're very involved in the local Florida appellate community. In fact, CSBA is a global sponsor of the appellate practice section of the Florida Bar. If you want to learn more about supersedious bonds, check out episode 9 of this podcast, Nothing Rhymes with Supersedious, and an in-depth discussion with CSBA President Dan Huckabay. Next time your client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, giving you one less thing to worry about. Okay, um, we're going to shift gears a little bit here. So uh, you're moving on to bigger and bigger money, Jared. All right. What are we up to now? Uh, it's, it's, there's really no money. Uh, okay, so I want to ask you a couple questions, uh, sort of a series of questions that highlight some of the differences between the district courts of appeal. Uh, okay. In Florida, we have five different DCAs. Of course, they all follow the, the Florida Rules of Appellate Procedure, but there are various local rule differences between the DCAs and different ways that they handle things, so we wanted to highlight a couple of those. So, first, Jared, which DCA requires the filing of a docketing statement? That is the first DCA, yeah, and they've required that for years, although I think they recently changed something about it, about exactly how it gets filed. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, something involving, they used to require it being filed through EDCA, and I think there's a newer administrative order that suggests that the process of filing is going to be different. So check that out. But I think they still require the docketing statement. No other DCA in Florida does. Yeah, and again, the, the consequences, if you don't, um, mostly embarrassment, right? You're going to get some sort of order directing you to do it or else. I, I hope so. Um, <laughs> you know, the consequences could be more severe if they really wanted to press the issue, but but I I doubt that's the case most of the time. But let's hope it's not another trap, right? Let's hope it's not another trap. <laughs> now, what about, uh, I know at least one of the DCAs has some unique requirements for extensions of time. Uh, what are they? Right, so the fifth DCA a couple years ago um, issued an order that says that if you're going to seek an extension of time with them, either by a stipulated notice or by motion, it doesn't matter that you have to include a certification that on the day that you have filed the motion or stipulation that you have also sent a copy to your client. You don't have to put the client's name in it. You don't have to do anything else except certify on, on your honor, basically that you've done it, but you have to say that you've given the client notice. There are certainly other courts that, that do that, but the 5th DCA, DCA is sort of leading the charge in the Florida appellate courts. So that's, um, yeah, that's an interesting thing and something to be aware of. Yeah. Now, what about appellate mediation? Uh, longtime listeners of the show may know the answer to this question, but uh, hey, Jared, are any of the DCAs requiring <laughs> appellate uh, mediation? I think the only DCA that has anything to do with appellate mediation is the 5th. And they created an appellate program several years ago. And I believe uh, the previous episode you were speaking of is the one with the incomparable Nick Shanine, who does quite a bit of appellate mediation um, over in that area as well. And um, he, if, if you're looking to learn more about that process, he is the man to talk to. And also that, that edition of the podcast is the one to listen to. You don't happen to know which one it is off the top of your head. Do you, Dwayne? I think it's episode two. It's called give peace a chance. Was it two all the way back then? I think it was two. Wow. <laughs> wow. And what are we up to now? What is this one? 37. Wow. Okay. Time yeah. flies when you're locked in in your house at home it sure does and time flies when you're climbing the quiz show ladder here jared you're moving up again all right you can just feel the tension can't you (laughs) big money big money no whammies (laughs) oh it feels like these are all all these questions are are trap-like situations right we sort of have a theme here um does filing a notice of appeal uh, abandon any pending trial court post-judgment motions that you have, like a motion for rehearing? No, but with the caveat that so long as the pending motion of the trial court 
is timely and authorized so as to delay rendition. Now, the rules were amended a few years ago for that, the appellate rules, that treat a, a notice of appeal filed before a trial court order is considered rendered um, as premature. And in that situation, the appellate courts, they can dismiss your appeal as premature, but most likely won't. Um, they'll re- they'd rather just wait until the trial court uses its continuing jurisdiction to rule on the motion for rehearing. But yeah, that, that big caveat there is that um, your motion for rehearing or whatever, whatever authorized motion it is, and there's a few authorized motions, I think it's under 9020H, that will toll rendition of the trial court order. You have, you have to make sure it's timely and authorized under that rule. Otherwise, it will not toll. Uh, let's see. I think we are moving on. Okay. So when it comes to appellate motion practice, um, one thing that we, uh, we know as appellate practitioners is that most uh, appellate motions in state court toll time. Uh, whenever mm-hmm. when you file them, it tolls uh, further deadlines in the case. But uh, in point of fact, there are some that don't toll time, right? Uh, right. T- let's let's talk about what are the motions that don't toll time. All right. Well, I'm going to cheat here with my copy of the appellate rules because it's a list or so, and uh, that's all in Rule Nine Point Three Hundred, and the list includes motions that deal with post-trial release, stays pending appeal. Anything related to oral argument, uh, things related to joinder and substitution of parties, things related to amicus curiae, attorney's fees, service issues, admissions or withdrawals of attorneys, sanctions issues, expediting the appeal, which makes sense because you wouldn't want to toll time by filing your motion to expedite. Um, <laughs> anything in an appeal reviewing a final order dismissing a petition for judicial waiver or parental notice of termination of pregnancy. Those can't hold time because obviously time is of the essence in those cases. Uh, motion for mediation, if filed more than 30 days after the notice of appeal, which I, again, really doesn't apply anywhere in the fifth or, it, well, it doesn't typically apply. And then the, the last one, which is probably the most important one for us, is that all motions filed in the Supreme Court unless accompanied by a motion to toll time. So although DCAs will toll time, if you're in the Supreme Court, the same motion will not toll time unless you file a separate motion. Although I understand there's a movement within the Appellate Court Rules Committee to try to get rid of that, but I haven't heard of uh, progress yet. Well, and I think these a couple of these are trappy kind of things, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, continuing our theme, because while I'm reconsidering what I said is that mo- most motions toll time, you know, probably in volume of motions that we file and the things that we typically file, they probably, you know, most of them do toll time, but there really is a pretty, pretty long list of things that don't toll time. And a lot of them make a lot of sense, like motions yeah. for fees shouldn't toll time and, you know, that sort of thing. But um, the the one gotcha in there it definitely is in the Supreme Court. Um, mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. clear to me why the procedure should be different in the Florida Supreme Court. Me uh, which I'm not sure. makes sense. There has always been talk, and I, like you said, I think there is talk about changing that. Um, there's not a whole lot of logic behind that, but yeah. So in the Supreme Court, when you file a motion, um, you also, if you want to toll time, you also have to file a separate motion to toll time. Mm-hmm. You know, the interesting thing about this list is that I, I think you're right in that the, the volume of motions uh, that are filed, if you look just at volume, most motions that we would file every day, um, due toll time because you know what, what are what are our standard motions that we're filing on a regular basis motions for extension of time maybe supplementing the record um and maybe for actually that's probably those are probably the two primary motions what do you think Dwayne? yeah i think for sure the the, the bulk of them are that <laughs> um I, there is one quirk about supplementing supplementing the record that has come up with me before um, is that while the motion to supplement the record will toll time, once the court rules on it, if the court grants it and says the record will be supplemented within X number of days, that period, while the clerk is preparing the record, preparing the supplemental record, does not toll time. Um, and uh, I think you could read the rule both ways, but I, I've spoken with some uh, 
with some people at a couple of courts, a couple of the DCAs, and their opinions were always uh, that it would not hold time and you're on the clock. So if you're looking for, um, it makes sense that you would, that it would hold time. It would make sense. That you have to wait for the record to come in before you can finish your brief. And therefore uh, supplementing the record process would hold time. But if you want that extra time, you need to, in your motion to supplement, ask for an extension along with it. The second part of this question is, some of us, a lot of us practice also in federal court in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Do motions toll time in the 11th Circuit? Usually not. So they're the opposite. The, the state courts say um, motions toll time unless it's one on this list. And the 11th Circuit is the opposite way. Motions do not toll time unless it's on this extremely short list. Um, a motion to consolidate will toll time. And a motion to file a brief at a time. This is an interesting one. I actually didn't know this until very recently. If the other side's late and they file their brief and they've asked the court to accept it late, your time to file your brief, your responsive brief, is told until the court rules on that motion. So basically, it, it postpones the schedule until the court decides whether or not to accept the other side's brief. And is the rationale for that, you think, in case they don't accept the out-of-time brief, that you don't have to file a response? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. I would not have thought about that either. Um, I mean, I would guess if you're, if you're the appellant and uh, they decide not to accept the answer brief, then there'd be no point in having you start the reply. It just sort of builds into the rule, sort of a, a not a presumption, but like a, there's a very real possibility they're not going to take your brief out of time. That's what it seems to imply. Absolutely. And with, <laughs> and with the, you know, their, their language about what kinds of extensions they'll accept, um, they're, they're very harsh about saying that they do not plan to accept a, a second extension unless there's extreme circumstances. So it, it fits with that rubric of, of what they're you know, what their mindset is on them. So it's definitely uh, the attitude towards time extensions is definitely different in federal court than it is in state court. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, the important thing being that, like you said, motions for extensions don't, don't toll time. So, you know, you got to get it in early. early. Mm -hmm. Excellent. All right, Jared, I think you're uh, moving on. Not too bad yet. Getting back to state court for a minute, let's talk for a minute about en banc review because I have seen more of these lately than than is probably appropriate. But I've seen more too recently. It's, it's a trend, it seems. Yeah, uh, I, I guess you know maybe as a society we just don't take no for an answer anymore. But <laughs> what is it that I have to say in order to get en banc review? So there are two bases for seeking en banc review. One is uh, that the case is of exceptional importance. And the second is that there's a conflict between the decision you have and some previous decision of this court. So uh, depending on which of those two bases uh, you plan on arguing, you have one of two different statements you have to recite word for word from the appellate rule. The first one, and again, I'm going to read from the rule. This is rule 9.331. I express a belief based on a reasoned and studied professional judgment that the case or issue is of exceptional importance. If you're going to go on the conflict one, it's, I express a belief based on a reasoned and studied professional judgment that the panel decision is contrary to the following decision or decisions of this court and that a consideration by the full court is ne necessary to maintain uniformity of decisions in this court. And then immediately after that, you have to cite specifically the case or cases that are the conflict, uh, conflict cases. Um, so that has to be... That certification, that exact wording has to be in your motion or it will be denied. And I find sometimes people, <laughs> sometimes people make these certifications and I wonder how. Um, but, <laughs> but I do note that the, the first one that you read on the uh, exceptional importance, that's a lot more wishy-washy standard, right? I mean, you know, for me and to say that uh, I believe that it's a, of uh, exceptional importance, and of course it's based on my reasoned and studied professional judgment, but 
but that might be a little easier to fudge than saying that we believe it's uh, directly contrary to, to decisions of the court. And I've, I've seen both of them taken yeah. a little too loosely, but the second one seems like a little higher standard to me. Yeah, so, but both of these are more flexible than the things you think about for um, going up to the Supreme Court. You know, uh, those have rigid applications of law. You can find a bunch of case law on each of those saying, you know, what is exceptional importance for Supreme Court jurisdiction and what is a conflict for Supreme Court jurisdiction. Um, but the cases also say that when you're looking at the same terms for the purposes of rehearing or rehearing a bunk, that you can fudge them both a little bit more. Um, obviously, especially, especially the exceptional importance, but, and also, as I think you've noticed, and I've noticed over the past few years, it seems that exceptional importance, the threshold has uh, gone down for people to file the motions, but the courts aren't granting any more of them. It's still <laughs> the last I spoke, I spoke with the second DCA clerk a few years ago, asking her um, how many um, bog decisions she had. We were going over statistics for another reason. And I think in the previous three years, it was something like two on bonk reviews granted, one on bonk review granted, and three three on bonk run bonk reviews granted. They were all lower lower single digit numbers. Yeah. So if you think about the four or five or six thousand cases the second DCA is seeing every year, those are your chances. Um, and maybe we should all consider that when we were considering whether our case, my case, is really of exceptional importance to, to warrant a motion for a hearing on Buck. You know, I think that that's, that's true. That's important. I, I always tell my clients that, you know, if they're, if they're asking me what are the options, obviously I want to tell them what the options are, but I also want to explain to them what, what's appropriate and what's not and what your chances of success are. And, you know, your, your chances of getting in Bonk review are are better than getting struck by lightning, but not a whole lot better. <laughs> that's probably accurate. That's, that's, that's a good one. All right, Jared, we're, 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 we're getting, I think we're, we're at least halfway through now to, to, uh, you know, the end here. So you're, you're, you're doing very well. Keep it up. Let's talk about. I guess, I guess your audience will be the final arbiter of uh, how well I do. How many how many nasty emails I get afterwards? That's right. <laughs> uh, so this question is: uh, How long do I have to file a petition for a writ of cert to the U.S. Supreme Court? Uh, this is something else that you know probably shouldn't get done as often as it does, but but people sometimes do it. So what's 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 the time frame there? So it's 90 days, and that runs also, this is another one of those weird ones, it runs from the date of the court's opinion, not the mandate. It doesn't happen so much in our practice, uh, both you and I being civil appellate attorneys for the most part, but I know it happens much more frequently with um, the criminal, criminal appellate attorneys, I know, um, with, with, with good reason. I'm not saying they, they have a, a better reason to file in the in the U.S. Supreme Court than we do on a regular basis. So yeah, no, that's a good point, and I, and I certainly didn't mean to um, suggest that. Right, criminal lawyers have criminal lawyers deal with constitutional constitutional issues and important issues uh, much more than we do. Right. <laughs> but yeah, but that is interesting, right, exactly. and I guess it's it's not this one is not a trap in the sense that ninety days is longer than you would expect. Right. Uh, although it is at least, like you say, it's measured from the opinion and not from the mandate. So uh, I guess if you mm-hmm. half understood mm-hmm. the rule, it could be a trap. But um, 90 days is a considerable period of time. So that 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 feels like enough. OK, Jared, we're going to flip to uh, federal again uh, for just a little bit. We had talked Ooh. about mediation in the. Uh, state court and in the fifth DCA, but mediation is also a big thing in the Eleventh Circuit. Uh, a lot of cases that that meet certain uh, requirements get referred to mediation, and questions always come up because mediation uh, can take some time. Whether mediators mm-hmm. can grant extensions of time and how that works uh, once your case has already you know been designated for mediation. So uh, tell us about that. Yeah, so this is definitely a trap question. Um, if so mediators have a lot of um a lot of discretion in the 11th circuit to grant extensions as need be but there's there's a trick to it if you have sought an extension from the 11th circuit already from the court 
um, the mediator is powerless to grant you additional extensions. The only way the mediator can grant you extensions and pretty much unlimited within a reasonable amount or within a reasonable time extensions, he can just, he or she can just keep stringing things out as long as is necessary to further the purposes of mediation is if the court has not already um, uh, exercised its authority in your case. So I think one of the biggest tricks or trap avoidance processes here is that if you're in the 11th and you have a good faith intent to go through with, with mediation and really try to settle, you think the other side does too, and mediation might actually be um, worthy of pursuing is to get everything you need to get filed in early as far as the, um, uh, the CIP, the certificate interest for interested persons, um, any docketing statements that are required, get all that preliminary stuff in. Once the 11th circuit has that is when they will almost always assign every case to a mediation, at least preliminarily, and then jump on with a mediator and ask for the extension at that point, if you're running up against the clock. Because the alternative is if you need more time and you ask the court for an extension before the mediator gets involved, you're going to be stuck with that single extension that the appellate court wants to grant you. And I've seen second extensions granted, but you don't want to be in that position of having to ask for one. So um, try to get the mediator process rolling and ask the mediator for extension first. That, that is great advice. And especially like we talked about federal courts are so particular about their time extensions. Um, one benefit of being in the mediation program is being able to use that process. Right. Absolutely. And, and the mediator can even grant you extensions after the mediation is over. So um, say it ends in something, maybe not a full about impasse, but you end your official date of mediation uh, without a resolution. If the parties are still trying and still talking to each other, you can ask the mediator for more time while the parties are discussing um, without the mediator there for the next few weeks. And uh, I've seen mediators happy to grant that. Again, as long as it's not just for the purposes of getting more time for your brief, you're actually using it to um, further mediation so people aren't wasting their time on briefing something that may settle. That's good advice. And I just <laughs> you you always have to keep your eye on the clock uh, in federal court. Any, Absolutely. Any little bit helps. Mm-hmm. All right. Here mm-hmm. we go. So, Jared, this is one of my favorite questions on the on the show, the game show today, because one of the most common questions I'm asked at my law firm by my partners and other lawyers is about the finality of orders. Mm-hmm. They're constantly parading orders into my office and saying, is this appealable? Is this appealable? So one of the things, you, Dwayne, it's great that they ask you that, right? <laughs> well, it would so, be nice. It's, if, it's great that they ask you that before it's, you know, 30 days had passed. So sometimes it would be nice if they asked before they submitted the orders, but you know, that's okay too. <laughs> um, and we always talk about words of finality. So my question for you on the show is are words of finality necessary to have a final order for appeal? That seems like a trick question, Dwayne. Um, but it's a trick question we all get. So I think the answer is there has to be something in the order that demonstrates it's intended to be final and, and resolves all the issues that are left for the trial court to determine. But as far as any magic words, um, not required. But those magic words also do kind of show that intent that the trial court thinks is done. So... The, the magic words of finality are sometimes helpful to show the trial court's intent and whether the trial court thinks it's done, but they're not necessary to create a final order. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. They're not, they're not necessary. They're also not necessarily dispositive. If I was going to say, it's a flip side to that yeah, too, right? If you throw the words in, but, but the order doesn't really end, end the judicial labor in the case, uh, that's still not enough. So the words are nice. I like to have them there. If they come to me early enough to say, how do we draft this to make sure it's a final order? I make sure those words are in there. Um, but mm-hmm. it's, um, yeah, the, the analysis goes beyond. It's just the words of finality that we talk about, like uh, go forth without day and let execution issue. Those types of words are, are helpful uh, for sure, but not the end all beat all of determining finality. Right. And, you know, those words sometimes might create a partial final judgment, too. Um, 
and that that gets into another complicated area. So, Dwayne, let me flip the tables on you. So, what do you do when you have an order that um, has words of finality, but you're not quite sure it's final? Uh, what's the plan? Well, you know, I think you you always have to be safe as opposed to sorry. Uh, and if if I think an order might be final, then I treat it as a final order and 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 appeal it in that in that fashion and and deal with whatever issues may come. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think you just um, it's a it's a judgment call. But mm-hmm. I think that if the if the language is there and it's it's if there's an argument. Uh, that is final. Sometimes you just have to cover yourself and be careful. But um, yeah, that, that, that's why appellate lawyers get paid the big bucks, right, to make these decisions. Right, right. So yeah. do I get points for that answer? I don't know. That was kind of a that was a lawyer's answer right there. I'm not sure if uh, I should get points for that one. That's a, the typical uh, <laughs> lawyer. It depends. Answer. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> but you know. Uh, sometimes that that is the answer. So I'm going mm-hmm. to uh, I'm, the judges. The, the word from the the judges is uh, you, you you can still move on. All right. So we are smack dab in the middle of a new era of appellate practice with electronic filing, online dockets. Uh, you know, it has definitely changed the uh, digital records and a, you know, text searchable PDF. My gosh, does it get any better? Uh, are there any appellate courts where I still have to file paper? The 11th Circuit, you are still stuck filing paper. Um, they require the, uh, the federal briefs to be filed in paper. And, you know, I, I would need to ch- I think they still require a copy of the appendix to be filed in paper. Um, several copies of the appendix, actually, I think. Um, so the federal courts still require it. The state courts, I think we've gotten rid of all of it, in the at least in the practice that you and I do, Dwayne. I, I don't think there's anything left. Um, until recently, you were still supposed to file certain petitions in paper, but uh, most people didn't, and that didn't seem to phase the courts at all. Um, so I think that's it. Yeah, I still can't believe in, in today's modern age that I have to send, uh, I think, seven copies of a brief, and and I, I think you're right. I think it's less copies of the appendix. And I have to put them all in a box and mm-hmm. ship them up to Atlanta, um, which just seems crazy. Um, and as best I can tell, it's just because uh, the, the the preferences of the either the judges or the staff up there that they they want some of them want paper copies and they don't want to print it or copy it, which I understand. And so, uh, here we go. Hey, what's interesting too, is that, well, there's a couple of things that are interesting. One, I doubt that all the judges and staff are using paper. Like, like you said, um, electronics just so much easier to use these days that at least I, at least I won't pick up, I won't print something in paper until I'm absolutely sure I really want to read it in paper. And there are those times, but most of the time I'm doing everything electronically. And I think you are too. Sure. Um, Especially now that I'm at home due to the pandemic, (laughs) um, you know, printing is on my dime (laughs) and I print even less. (laughs) So the other thing is that we're sending everything to Atlanta and most of the judges aren't there. Yeah. So they're shipping them out again. Is, is that what they're doing? I don't know. I wonder how many of our boxes get dumped into a, <laughs> into a recycle <laughs> bin in Atlanta, but <laughs> someday, someday maybe we'll, we'll yeah. get past that. So, okay, Jared, I, we, we are closing in on the end here. Are you getting nervous? Uh, a little bit, um, but I don't know what the stakes are. So maybe that's what I'm more nervous <laughs> about than anything. All right, here we go. <laughs> Okay. Now, I I don't know if this is a trap or not, because I don't think the court will necessarily kick your brief back. But let's talk about there is at least one way uh, that federal briefs are different than state briefs. I mean, we know the rules are different, but there's one particular little nuance of federal briefs that I think is often overlooked. Uh, Tell us about that. Uh, I, I may have been guilty of this at least once. Um, 
asterisks. So the table of authorities in, in a federal brief, you're supposed to put an asterisk next to what you, next to what you think is the most important one or two cases um, that you want the court to read. And that's always something you probably want to wait till the end of briefing to do. It might be kind of a final read-through kind of thing, but it's also the kind of thing that's really easy to forget on the final read-through to put an asterisk in the table of authorities. So, um, so that's that's probably the biggest one. The other one that I've, I've uh, I may or may not have messed up once in the past um, is having the the short title of the of the case um, on the on the top of the page for every page. Or, and I'll admit I, I couldn't even tell you the requirement off the top of my head right now. I just know that it exists, and I won't miss it again. I will go look it up every single time. Yeah. Yeah. And I could see like, you know, the, the, the way you have to number the page numbers on like the certificate of interested persons. Um, yeah. Let's see one of three or whatever it yeah, is. And that is, I can see why that's important to the court. Cause I, I, I think the process is they probably separate those things and send them around, you know, um, to make sure that there are no conflicts internally and that sort of thing. So I can see the, the importance of that. You know, I wonder uh, how much, anybody pays attention to the asterisks but um you know it's in the rules and i think it it makes us look mm-hmm. like we know what we're doing if we remember to uh to star the appropriate cases but then again i don't think anybody notices when we don't so <laughs> probably not at least i hope so. at least i hope so <laughs> okay jared we we are uh we are approaching the final question now you uh you haven't had to phone a friend uh, you know, you, we, I, I, that was an option. <laughs> oh, come on, Dwayne. I have lifelines. <laughs> you, you, you haven't needed them. So here we go. This we're, we're, we're moving to the final question. Okay, Jared. Now okay. you and I practice a lot in the second district court of appeal. Uh, you previously worked for the second district court of appeal. Uh, mm-hmm. we know that there are this we maybe should have talked about this when we're talking about nuances between the uh, district courts, but uh, what, tell us something that you can do with your brief, the format of your brief and the second district court of appeal uh, that will get your brief uh, kicked back. That might not happen in other DCAs. So we're this, who wants to be a millionaire. I'd be the person like shaking on stage right now because I know the answer (laughs) about to win everything. Um, but here I, I, I get nothing. So, uh, so, so the thing that will get you kicked out of the second DCA or get your brief uh, rejected and you'll have to refile it um, that isn't in the rules anywhere is footnotes. Don't use extensive footnotes in the second DCA. Um, they, use, they take your briefs, and I think everybody who's listening to this podcast has heard this spiel at any number of um, CLEs because it comes up in any, any CLE that a second DCA judge is at. But uh, for posterity anyways, the second DCA takes everybody's briefs and turns them into a compilation, which means they combine the three of them into a single word document. And, and that is what's passed around the judge, around to the judges. Nothing's changed, but a staff attorney might put in a couple of notes when they're reading uh, the cases um, or the facts or things like that. And the judges get that. The problem when you put footnotes into your brief is that those don't translate. They can't, because the software they're using cannot maintain a footnote in this compilation. So what happens to your footnote? It gets moved up into the text where you have the footnote symbol, which makes it no longer a footnote. They really don't like doing it. It's a pain and it breaks up the the reading. Um, In the past 10 years, maybe, um, a certain well-renowned author uh, and legal and legal mind has suggested that everybody put every citation to authority in the footnotes. If you do that, your brief will get rejected and they'll say, fix it. Cause we're not going to read it like this. We're not even going to try to move all those footnotes up. At least I've seen that happen once or twice. So in the second DCA, be extremely uh, careful. If you ever use a footnote, you probably don't need to. And definitely don't put your sites in the footnotes. You know, as a, as a writer and as a former law review editor, I like footnotes. I I don't like them in the, 
in the Brian Garner kind of way, who you were trying not to call out, but but we can. Uh, <laughs> I, I have I have gotten some uh, not appellate briefs, but I've gotten some briefs recently where lawyers um, at big firms from other states have taken that approach of putting you know every citation in the footnote. I don't like that. Uh, I, I like to look at the citations in line and see what you're citing to and how good I think it is and how recent it is and that sort of thing. But um, there there are times when I will occasionally, and not without great aforethought, uh, put a footnote in an appellate brief if I just if it's tangential enough that I can't figure out how to work it in, but I want to sort of you know either answer a question that might come up or, or acknowledge something. You know, it's hard to think of an exact circumstances, but there are times mm-hmm. when I will use a footnote, but my, my standard for footnotes is, um, do I care if nobody ever reads it? You know right. what I mean? If, it, if, if, if I'm okay with the fact that nobody may ever, it might get missed, you know, it might, some, nobody may ever read it, but at least I know it's there for whatever reason I wanted to have it there. Um, but anything that is important enough, you know, has to be in the text. I think there's some case authority that suggests that like you can't preserve an argument by putting it in a footnote and that sort of there thing. Is. So that's true. Yeah. That's a good point. So I, I that, that's sort of my standard is if it's something I just can't bear not to say, but I can't quite figure out <laughs> how to fit it in. And if they don't see it, they don't see it. That's okay. Then, you know, that'll become a footnote. But, um, Right. Point well taken is that a lot of a lot of judges don't like it. You know, I wonder, do you think it's any different for something that is not a brief that is being compiled into a, you know, a compilation brief? If you're if you're sending in a 10 page motion to dismiss, um, is that maybe different? I actually I, I do think it is different. And I mean, although my standard writing process, because I started at the second DCA is to avoid footnotes, um, I, I, too, like using a footnote on occasion and and have to hold myself back sometimes when i'm working the second but i i will use them in motions or responses where i think they're appropriate i'm still you know rather cautious about it and and with significant uh a forethought a forethought about it like as you said but um but i will use them in motions and i don't think the court i don't, I don't think it bothers the court one bit there it's really just the the um the compilation issue that is the problem, but I still wouldn't go putting my citations in no. in footnotes, even in motions, because uh, they've just railed against that so hard that I think that would strike the wrong chord with them, no matter where they saw that. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And Jared, I think based on your answer, I think you have won the first episode of Stump the Chump Appellate Style. Woo-hoo! Now, how'd you get these balloons in my house? <laughs> <laughs> and now I have to clean up all this confetti. <laughs> well, I think more importantly, we are out of time and or out of interest in uh, in the show. Uh, anybody who's left, uh, thank you. But uh, Jared, you've you've done a fantastic job. Uh, you weren't stumped, which kind of ruins the whole premise of the show. So uh, you know, thanks for that. Hey, the best least I could do for you, Dwayne. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, and thank you, as always, for being on the podcast. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thanks to Jared Krukar for being on the podcast and being such a good sport. His biography and contact information is in the show notes. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice, and nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer and needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. My contact information is always in the show notes. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is also in the show notes. Please take a moment, add it to your contacts so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. Next episode will release in two weeks. I hope that you will continue to download and listen. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal. All right.
that's a wrap. Hey, that was that was good. Thanks. That was a uh, that was fun. No, oh, thanks, man. That was great. Um, thanks for not being too hard on me. Well, yeah, I, you know, I think uh, I don't know if it came out as game showy as we would like, but we tried. <laughs> yeah. I, I, we we needed some whammy sounds, I think. Yeah, maybe, but you know, We're missing the whammy. Uh, being being a uh, being a lawyer, I have to buy these uh, you know license free sounds that I use, and they they're not cheap necessarily. So, good point. <laughs> I had to be a little conservative in my, in my sounds. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to get my intellectual property friends all uh, all up on me here. Oh, but, you know uh, you would too. You know, I just, um, different formats, you know, I mean, I, I listen to so many podcasts and you, you hear things, you know, you hear all these different formats. So I've always wanted to, you know, like have some consistency, you know, obviously you want to be playing to the same audience all the time, but mm-hmm. you know, we've done the one-on-one interviews and I've done two guest interviews and I've done the shows with like four or five guests where everybody gets a few minutes and I've had non-lawyers and we did the live show at the right. uh, at the bar meeting with an audience and you've you've guest hosted and I don't know you've probably noticed the last couple episodes I've tried some soundscaping here and there just to mm-hmm. you know create some interest and so now I've done a game show so I feel like it's um <laughs> you know and we didn't talk about it but stump the chump you know uh it's kind of an homage to talk radio right because that was uh click and clack on car talk radio did stump the chump right although i think they were probably a little more entertaining than i was but but <laughs> we did our best i think oh yeah they made a career on that npr <laughs> or, or whatever doing doing that but um yeah yeah i miss those guys yeah me too <laughs> So, I, I don't know. So what, else, so what else do we have? Are there, are there any other ideas? You know, yeah, I'd like to have some judges on the show at some point. I, I, um, I've I, hesitated to do that, but I think I, we could do that. I think people would like that. Um, you know, I'd like to do a movie review podcast at some point, and um, the only movie... <laughs> The only movie that actually talks about or has anything to do with appellate lawyers is the uh, the the latest uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie on the basis of sex. So I, I think it might be fun to talk about that. Um, I've talked about maybe doing a, a book review. I'd love to have like a crossover event with another legal podcast, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure who. So there's, you know, these are all like podcasting tricks, you know, of the trade and and things that people use and. Uh, being kind of a student, uh, you know, or an avid listener of podcasting, I've just wanted to, to try them all. What if you had somebody on to talk about um some sort of story that involves appellate law? Yeah, you know, uh, it's just somebody who could tell the story of a case that went on appeal or went to the Supreme Court. Um, speak to an attorney who did that, and and just tell the story of a case. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, and I've thought about that. I, you know, I'd like to. It would be cool to talk to. Um, lawyers on both sides of a case and then that are that are going to argue it and then maybe pull down the audio of an oa and pull clips out and then talk to the lawyers afterwards i mean that would be pretty cool you know sort of like anatomy of a murder but uh but a but a appellate case right so Uh, i'd listen yeah what do you think about having like an after show segment uh you know what where people who really dedicate listeners have listened to the whole show. They've listened past the theme song and they're still listening, you know, to hear some, you know, just banter by the, after the show to get a little informal bonus content. I mean, on the shows I listen to, I, I love that. What, what do you think about that? Oh, you mean kind of like a Marvel movie, those after scenes for the, uh, the devoted few. Yeah. Like a post credit sequence. Well, if we do that, can I be Chris Hemsworth? 